Hello, everybody, and welcome to this edition of So Important, where we talk to all kinds of interesting people about something interesting and important to them. And today we have a very special guest. You may recall our very first episode where we talked to Moshe Engelberg about something important to him on the personal side, which was the role of spirit in his life. Well, today Moshe is back. He is our first return guest. And he has written a book that is absolutely compelling, and it is something that I am so happy that I have a chance to talk with Moshe about. But first, uh, Moshe, welcome to the show. Thanks, Monty. Good to be back with you. So, Moshe, I'm so happy to have you back, and I want to talk about your recent book, The Amare Wave. This is a book about a new way of doing business, and I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about what inspired you to write this book. Sure, happy to do that. It was really a convergence of three things. I've ha- I've had a consulting firm called Research Works that I've led for 28, 29 years, and the work that I've been doing has to do with helping organizations, nonprofits, government agencies, large corporations, startups figure out who they are, why people should choose them, what their value proposition is, how to position themselves in the marketplace, things like that. And underneath it is research, which grows out of that is strategy. And from there is the communications that tell the story. And in doing that, particularly with the more profit-oriented companies, it became clear that there was a lot of unhappiness and a lot of suffering. In fact, one client, a senior product manager at a very large a medical technology company once said to me, Moshe, you know, we, we, we hate our customers. And it was really striking to hear him say that. And, and I knew it to be true. It wasn't an exaggeration. It wasn't drama. It was, it was just a statement of fact. Um, but it was a little bit saddening and very, um, I guess, awakening at the same time. And, and I reflected on that and realized there's a lot of companies where there's not exactly love between the company and the customers. There might be disdain, there might be dislike, there might be more of a neutral relationship. So hate was a strong word, but it was reflective of what is happening in in a fair number of businesses, I think. So that was one piece, is seeing the unhappiness and, and the suffering that can be caused in and by business. A second piece was the language that's used in business. And early in my career, when I was, I was finishing my PhD at Stanford and figuring out what am I going to do next? Academia, consulting, something else. And I was looking into some of the larger management consulting firms, McKinsey, Boston Consulting, and so on. And at the time, this was many years ago, people were described in one of two ways, either hunters or skinners. Hunters brought in the business. Skinners did the work. At that time, I thought it was odd. That's kind of a bizarre way to talk about the people we work with, we're here to serve, and those that pay us money. And then I kind of forgot and went on with life. And it's still the language of business still bothered me. But over the years, it, it became more and more disturbing. And I was part of the problem. I was contributing to it using words like, Let's help help our clients capture market share, crush the competition, and so on. There is this notion that business is predatory, and we win by subduing, by dominating our customers and bending them to our will. And again, I thought, that's just bizarre. There's something wrong with that. So that was the second piece. And the third piece was my own journey. It ties into the the topic of our first conversation when you first started this wonderful podcast about spirit. 
And so my own spiritual journey has been one toward recognizing the unity of things, that we're all essentially made of the same stuff and part of a larger force of and and that love is essentially what unifies us and brings us all together. Ultimately, it was the convergence of those three things of seeing the unhappiness in business and disgruntled employees and dissatisfaction, customers that weren't happy and so on, the, the suffering that ensued, sometimes with disdain, sometimes even with hatred, and then the predatory language of business and on the upside, the recognition of the unity, the commonality we all have and the power of love to generate that connection. So what makes this so fascinating is that all of these things came together and they led you to rethink the basic business paradigm, what you call in your book, the warlike way of doing business. And you have a different way of approaching uh, this topic. So can you talk a little bit about what is the traditional paradigm and what is your paradigm? The traditional paradigm or the predominant one anyway, is what I call business as war. And that's where there's a lot of fighting. And that's where the language comes up again of let's let's crush the competition, let's capture market share, and where the main metric is profitability. The premise there is that the reason business exists is to make money, to maximize shareholder return, and so on. And I believe that's a flawed premise. And it's a premise that essentially um, legitimizes any actions, however horrific they might be, because they make money. We saw that in the recession and the rescue of companies that were quote unquote too big to fail. And, and we, we see reflections of that in our current political situation. So the warlike paradigm creates an atmosphere of meanness and hatred and greed and causes suffering and does not produce better results. The alternative is what I call a love centered paradigm or business as love. And I'm not talking about romantic love. I'm not talking about what happens between two loving individuals per se. What I mean by love is the ener energy that uplifts and connects. So for example, when I walk into one of my favorite grocery stores, Trader Joe's, I feel a little bit uplifted. Like, yeah, it feels good to be here. And I feel a sense of connection. Yeah, these are kind of my people. It's a little bit quirky. I like the Hawaiian shirts. I kind of fit in. So this feeling of uplifted and connected, that's the energy of love. And it happens at Trader Joe's sells four to six times more per square foot than most other grocery stores. In contrast, when I walk into other stores, uh, some of the bigger chains, it's not bad. It's just a neutral. And I don't feel uplifted. I don't feel a sense of belonging. And I might go there. I might go somewhere else. So there's no loyalty on my part and so on. The paradigm of being love-centered, I think, offers business so many opportunities. And the premise here is that we're basically here to, here to serve, that business exists to provide value to society. And it does that by making people's lives better. A byproduct is that is profitability, including shareholder return, including other financial metrics. So that's, in sum, a contrast of the two paradigms. And do you feel that there are other examples in addition to Trader Joe's? Sure, sure. I lay out a number of them in the book, starting with some of the better known U.S.-based companies. For example, Costco, um, USAA, the financial institution, Tom's. Uh, Patagonia, and there's many others. There's also a book that came out a number of years ago called Firms of Endearment, and it was written by um, Raj Sisodia and his colleagues, and essentially showed that 
companies that are centered in love, and he might have used different words, the, the particular word isn't that important. What's important is the mentality and the practices of the companies is that their return on investment was more than eight to one over a 10-year period compared to the S&P 500. And that was something like 70 or 80 companies. So there's a fair amount of research that shows on one hand that companies that adopt these ideas, again, under whatever label, and there's a lot of labels, do better financially. There's also evidence that customers prefer to give their businesses to companies with whom they share values. Now, that's a very interesting thought to me, because if I were playing the devil's advocate, I would say the average customer is going to look for where they can get the product they want at the best price, and they're not going to be too concerned about the love or the general attitude that they feel in the store. And you're saying that that is not the case. I'm saying that that doesn't need to be the case. And when companies create more more reason for customers to care that go beyond the product or service, and a good example is Harley. So Harley riders are incredibly loyal to Harley-Davidson. And they wouldn't think of of riding a Honda bike or another bike. It's They have an allegiance to the brand because they see themselves in it. There's a sense of belonging and identification. So this magic happens when somebody merges their personal identity with that of a company. And at that point, it's not just about the best price. Sure, price matters, but it's not only price. I'm a drummer, as you know, and I have been using the same brand of symbols since I was 11 years old. And there are a lot of other good symbols out there, but I just feel an affinity toward this company. And maybe that's in its own way an example of what you're saying. It is. It, it is. And that affinity doesn't happen by accident. It's, it's cultivated. And in companies, it starts with the company's values, not just saying the words. A lot of companies use the right words. It's living them and rewarding them. There's a famous quote by Plato in Republic. And he says, what is honored in a country is cultivated there. And I believe that's true in business too. I'd substitute the word company for country. What is honored in a company is cultivated there. So if making money at any cost is what's honored, then that that is what will be cultivated. That will continue to grow. And that encourages all kinds of behaviors that we may consider wrong or unethical. In contrast, if what is honored in a company is treating people well, taking care of them and profiting accordingly, then that will be cultivated and that will be, that is what will flourish. Let's say that a uh, well-known supermarket chain or a well-known department store or even a small store that, that just had one shop around the corner from where you live said, Moshe, what can I do? What are some initial steps that I can take to start to move in this direction and to build that loyal customer base that seems to be at the heart of what you're getting at? What would you tell them? I would tell them to start with two questions. The first question is, do we love our customers? And customers can be one of one of a range of stakeholders. I'm using, it might be clients, it might be patients. So I'm using the word customers to mean the end users of the product or service. That's the first question is, do we love our customers? And companies that do answer that question very quickly. Yeah, of course we do. Companies that don't are either one organization I talked with recently was kind of put off by the, like, what are you talking about? This is business. Why would we love our customers? Which I thought was was a telling reaction. A more common reaction is, well, 
maybe some, it's kind of like with Facebook, it was, uh, it's complicated as a way to describe a relationship. So when a company loves their customers, it shows and it's purposeful. It's part of the company's ethos and philosophy. So they, they'll answer the question quickly. Yes, we do. The next question to ask is, do our customers love us? Sometimes that takes some research. Sometimes that knowledge is in place. And with answers to those questions, it provides a, a starting point, a benchmark, if you will, what the organization can do. So from there, there's a lot of ways to move forward. In the book, I outline seven key principles, any of which can be adopted to move forward, and a framework I call the ABCs of the Amari Way practice. And the principles, in short, are treat each treat one another well, inspire connection, get on purpose, respect money, choose love over fear, take the long view, and prioritize relationships. So I would tell the supermarket down the street they can choose any of those to start with. So for example, get on purpose. This is an idea that no company exists for the purpose of making money, but making money is a byproduct. So the purpose of a grocery store, its higher purpose is we want to nourish our community, for example. And then that purpose leads a lot of business decisions and it helps shape the business model and the value proposition and so on. Or they might choose take the long view that means it's sure we have to make enough money to pay the bills, but we're not going to make decisions with the short term in mind. We're in here for the long haul. And so we'll make decisions accordingly, even if it hurts in the short run. Going back to that previous principle a little bit, it's fascinating because it's a little counterintuitive. I, I assume the traditional business model is, you know, we need to make money and we have to figure out how to balance the books and make sure that we're profitable. But what you're saying is something fundamentally different. There's truth in what you're saying, and there's truth in another perspective. So the truth is, in any business, we have to make enough money to pay our bills. There is there is a saying uh, credited to a nun who wrote, who ran a large healthcare system: "No margin, no mission." If we're not making any money, we can't continue. That's just the nature of business and society. So it's not that money's not important, but it is not the only thing, and it's not the main thing, and it's not the reason the company exists. Where the problem comes about is when people confuse the reason, their reason for existing with making money. That's when it gets messy. So I'm suggesting in addition to making money to meet short-term needs, pay the bills, pay employees, and so on, you can have a long view where you're in it for the long haul and you make decisions that support your long-term viability. So you're not going to let short-term needs detract from sustaining the business over the long haul. A good example of this is Amazon. They didn't make money for over a decade. And they, Jeff Bezos wrote in a letter to shareholders early on, essentially that said, we're in this for the long run. And we recognize that this value may not fit with all investors, but we feel we need you to know our investment philosophy. Well, Moshe, I think you've written a groundbreaking book, and it, to me, it just sounds absolutely fascinating, and I think we certainly need a little bit more idealism in the world today, but what you're saying is not just idealistic, it's very practical. It's, you know, this is a practical advice for a different way of looking at the business model, and I think that that's something, it makes me wonder, what kind of reception are you getting to your ideas? I've gotten a very positive reception, even from people who I didn't expect it from. 
So when I've been presenting this with the stereotypical uh, middle-aged or older, usually male CEO who who has been hardened by years of business and fairly traditional in mindset. When I talk about this, something happens. There's this emotional reaction. It's like drops of water in a desert where these executives are, are showing that, yeah, this, this hurts too much. It's all the fighting and business wears us down. And yeah, we might have made money. We might even be rich from it, but it comes at a big cost. If there's another way we can prosper, a different path to prosperity, and it's, it's less painful and reduces amount of fighting and fighting and creates more kindness and compassion. Let's go that path. And that's what the Amari way, which is this approach for moving forward in business by putting love to work. That's what, that's the alternative path. How did you come up with the title? Well, I live in San Diego and I'm on the beach almost every day, usually walking my little dog, Zoe. And First, the book was going to be called Making Customer Love. And that was a little bit provocative and it was a little bit hyper-focused on the customer because it's really about business overall and questioning why business exists. So it was a little too narrow. And then the book was called The Amari Way. And that lacked the energy that exists. What I recognized is there's a lot of this already happening. There's been a lot of books written even in recent years, in recent weeks, two books came out, one by a colleague in San Diego called Love is Just Damn Good Business, another by a thought leader out of Massachusetts that's called uh, The Healing Organization. And this builds on other books, Leading with Love, Work is Love Made Visible. There's a plethora of books and thought leadership showing this path. What I feel I did simply is connect the dots that were already out there and give it a label that I call Amari. Amari is Latin for love. So the wave part came to me from looking at waves on the beach and saying, there's this energy happening. This momentum is in place. We need to acknowledge that and celebrate that and grow that. That's how the name came to be the Amari wave. Well, that is a great uh, summary of where you're coming from. And I think that's a great place to end the conversation. It's fascinating. And I wish you just nothing but great luck with what you're trying to do here. Thank you, Monty. I really appreciate it. And the world needs this kind of movement, this kind of energy. So I appreciate your helping to spread the word about that. We need all the positive energy we can get. Amen to that. Thank you very much, Moshe. Yes, indeed. Thank you so much, Moshe, for bringing your forward-leaning and positive ideas to the show. And thank you, listeners. I want to tell you again how much I appreciate your tuning into the show. And of course, I want to give a special welcome to the many new folks who joined our podcast family over the last couple weeks. So glad to have you. I hope you look over all the podcasts, going all the way to the first one, which, as we mentioned, also had Moshe in it. And just listen to some of the great people we had on, people from all walks of life, talking about so many different things. We had the daughter of the great folk singer, Oscar Brand. We had the great rhythm and blues singer, Barron's Whitfield. We had people talking about emotional issues that meant so much to them personally, and we heard stories of perseverance and exploration. So many wonderful things that we've heard on this show. So go ahead and give a listen. If you like what you hear, subscribe, 
Give us a like and maybe a little review on iTunes. That is always appreciated. And of course, the most important thing you can do is share with your friends. Let them know about all the exciting things and fun we're having right here on this show. I am so glad you are part of the So Important family, and I will talk to you soon. Have a great one. So